Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the resilience advantage, a 12-episode series created by U.S. Resiliency Council with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student at Cal Poly Slow and an aspiring architectural engineer. Working with the host of the series, Evan Reese, the executive director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability, sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Come along with me on my journey in learning more about resilient design and why it is so important in all of our lives. Episode 19, Prevention is the Best Medicine. My parents are always reminding me to take my vitamins, get exercise, and put on sunblock. They always tell me that it's better to prevent future sickness and wrinkles by starting now. And at first, I was hesitant because I thought, I'm still young. I won't have to worry about declining health or wrinkles until later. No one wants to hear about what might go wrong in the future. However, I thought about it more and caved. Even if I don't want to think about it, it's absolutely true that taking action now will ultimately be more beneficial. It's not just my parents saying this, it's science. The more we do to prevent disease, the less likely it is that we will have to deal with those repercussions later on. Some things can be preventable. This kind of relates to choosing resilience, right Evan? Absolutely, Audrey. The old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, is completely relevant when it comes to protecting our buildings from future natural disasters. The National Institute of Building Sciences has shown that investing $1 in resilient design pays back $4 to $13 in terms of reducing future losses. But still, even that no-brainer of a return on investment doesn't mean that everyone will choose to put on their resilience running shoes instead of procrastinating on the couch. When originally interviewed for the Resilience Advantage program, Cheryl Rabinovich was serving as the Director of Strategy and Communications for the U.S. Resiliency Council. I've had my own consulting practice in the field of disaster risk reduction, and before that worked for the U.S. Geological Survey to try and help find ways to bring the best science to decision-making in this field. The field of structural engineering does involve a lot of decision-making, from choosing between beam sizes to allow for more mechanical, electric, and plumbing systems, to choosing more environmentally sensitive and sustainable solutions, and even to choosing resilience. Cheryl, what does resilience mean to you, and why is it so important in our field? So resilience is the ability to adapt to changing conditions, to withstand disruption and rapidly recover from whatever shocks, acute or chronic, uh, a community might face. For a household, that might mean building up savings or a social support network that can help you in times of crisis. Um, For a business, that might mean contingency planning and diversifying investments continuing to innovate. For a community, that means your social, economic, uh, political, and physical systems are ready to absorb and change and respond to the disaster at hand. Data is the key to making better decisions. Um, 
imagine being able to measure and calibrate the amount of earthquake risk exposure there is in your real estate portfolio, in your organization's facilities system. Uh, That's what data and ratings that allow you to rank and prioritize, shift risk from here to there. uh, That's one thing that ratings uh, empower for the people who invest in them. These decisions involve the community as a whole. They affect everyone in one way or another. Why is this so important? So we have to, especially in this moment in history, um, take a pause and recognize who it is we're trying to serve with our disaster risk reduction work. Uh, There's a lot of audiences who are affected by disasters who aren't always involved in the conversation about what to do about them. And there's no doubt that we have a disproportionate impact of disasters on already vulnerable groups. Tell us a little more about how some populations are more vulnerable than others and how that relates to the disaster cycle. There are many reasons why people might be vulnerable to disasters, more vulnerable than the average person. Um, Some you might consider kind of natural factors. For instance, children are in a developmentally sensitive time in their bodies and minds. Um, An elderly person can be more vulnerable health-wise. They lack mobility and they're more dependent on others. Persons with mental health challenges uh, can be more susceptible to trauma or destabilized by disruption to their living situation. We also can't ignore the factor of historic and systemic racism and the bias and inattention to persons with access and functional needs and anyone else who might be isolated, ostracized, or less powerful in our society, because that's going to affect how disasters affect us all. In the disaster cycle, all these issues intersect and persist and reinforce themselves. The flip side of that, though, is that in a time of crisis, that's a chance, actually, to interrupt and counter these forces of vulnerability and shift that reality. I believe we have a moral obligation to do so, and I believe it's possible. What is the disaster cycle? What does it entail? There are always going to be floods, earthquakes, fires. It's what we do before, during, and after earthquakes that determines how the next one is going to feel. So if we don't pay attention to that cycle and do things better the next time, learn the lessons from the last disaster, we're just going to end up in the same place again. In your experience, from what you observed, what goes into breaking the disaster cycle? Uh, Engineers go out and survey the damage that's happened in past events, and we've learned incredible valuable lessons about what types of buildings are vulnerable, how our design solutions are working under different types of parameters that are unique to each event. Uh, We learn internationally. A lot of international jurisdictions use the codes and the building practices that we have prescribed here in the past. They're very relevant to what we need to be doing here before an event to make sure that the next event is less impactful. How can one step towards resilience impact the community? So when you invest in yourself, in your own families, in your own businesses, resilience, 
you're not only benefiting yourself, you're also saving the city from needing to support you in a moment of need. And you're more available to help others in their moment of need. You can't underestimate how devastating emotionally going through a disaster can be. And the more we protect homes, buildings, and the functions within them, uh, the less trauma we're going to have to deal with and recover from. We can get back up running again more smoothly. From a business owner's perspective, how is choosing resilience beneficial? What are the economic impacts? It's totally reasonable for businesses to focus on the bottom line and how making these investments really protect their investment, their financial future. Uh, Investing in your business's resilience is a way to protect your future operations and flow of income. And when the community invests in stability through resilient design, that means your employees and your customers are safe and ready to go back to work, ready to buy your products. What are some success stories of investments made in building community resilience? The Casa Adelante Low-Income Senior Housing Affordable Development in San Francisco. That's an important one. It represents a model of how to get these kinds of projects done. Uh, It's a ground-up community model where a community development corporation is partnering with the city, the mayor's office of housing, and another experienced CDC in Chinatown Development Corporation to pull off a project uh, that's really driven by what the community feels like it needs, and the project is going to have attributes that tie it back to the community and keep people from getting displaced, that keep seniors able to participate in the fabric that is the Mission District in San Francisco. There's also the example of the Martha Washington Apartments up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, The owner decided in 2010 to retrofit a formerly unreinforced masonry building, uh, making available over 100 units that can anchor people in the community. They don't need to leave because they can afford to live there. And they, at the same time, preserved a beautiful historic structure that really maintains the character of the neighborhood that everyone on that block in that community is going to be able to enjoy and benefit from. Thank you for sharing those great examples. It's encouraging to know that this kind of planning is happening. I'm sold. Sign me up for resiliency. So how does one get started in adding resilience to a building? I've interviewed over a thousand owners about how they've tackled their earthquake risk exposure in particular. And it always starts with getting curious and starting to ask questions. How might an earthquake impact my building, my business, my life, my community? And once you start probing there a little bit, you might find some warning signs. The structures in the buildings that I rent or own have some questionable aspects to them. Uh, You know, I'm very vulnerable to maybe sea level rise in the location that I'm working in. You're going to find some spots where there's some concern. And then you turn that curiosity, that search for information into a search for solutions. 
Is there something affordable and feasible and effective that I can do to remedy the situation? One key thing that can help is to start factoring disaster resilience into all of your strategic plans. It's not at the center of your strategic plans, but it is an important element that can inform a lot of different choices that you're needing to make. So research shows that people are 80% more likely to follow through on a goal when it's written down. So writing disaster resilience into your business's plans is a very effective thing that you can do. So is talking to other people about it. You're going to learn tips and learn through the experiences of your peers. You're also going to influence your peers to take similar actions and the overall community benefits more. We have to get out there and discuss what we're doing and why and help each other um, make these projects happen. So I can see how it is beneficial for businesses. How about cities and communities as a whole? What are some examples? We can point to about 10 or 15 largely California cities that have adopted, in particular, retrofit ordinances for various building types that are known to be higher hazard. Uh, so some of them are kind of the usual suspects of progressive legislation, cities like Berkeley and San Francisco. But it might surprise some people to learn that the city of Fremont was actually the first city in the Bay Area to adopt a soft story retrofit ordinance. And now Southern California has got on board. We have LA, we have Santa Monica, we have West Hollywood, um, Burbank has some policies. Uh, there are a number of cities now that have taken on these successful models and tried to replicate them in their own communities. What are some words of encouragement for cities that are worried about taking those first steps? What I would say to cities that are worried about going to the mandatory policy step is that there's a lot of options they can take short of that that will still do a lot of good. One of them is to inventory vulnerable buildings in your community. And that's actually a really essential first learning step in order to assess how important this issue really is. Another option is to implement a voluntary program. So once you get information out to the community about the fact that these vulnerable buildings exist and there's things we can economically do about those problems, uh, a lot of owners will actually see that information and take the opportunity to fix the problem without being made to do so. There's no doubt in my mind that spending the political capital and financial capital before a crisis hits is going to save communities money in the long run. Prevention is the best medicine. Prevention is the best medicine. This is exactly what my parents have been telling me. If you take measures to prevent the issue before it starts, you might not need to worry about the repercussions. Let's talk about costs, because I feel like this is the governing factor when communities think about choosing resilience. Are there any loans, laws, or other levers that make choosing resilience financially beneficial for a city? So anything we've tried for energy, like tax credits, anything we've tried around transit-oriented development, tax increment financing, transfer of development rights to give square footage bonuses to projects that also 
entertain higher standards for themselves in terms of seismic resilience. We're just not employing the whole suite of tools that are available to us. Um, you know, the state of California did a massive public policy experiment in the 1980s by passing its URM legislation, which mandated that all jurisdictions in the state do an inventory and somehow create a program to tackle the problem uh, of unreinforced buildings. And cities, counties, and other jurisdictions took a lot of different approaches. Some only did an inventory and reported that back to the state. Some had voluntary programs. Some had mandatory programs. And along with the policy innovation came a lot of incentive innovation. One tool cities can offer is exemptions or special privileges for buildings who are designed to meet higher resilience standards. If you're able to make trade-offs in what you give an owner to be able to invest in resilience, that can be a real win-win. The single biggest predictor of whether or not you've taken preparedness steps in your life is whether you know someone else who has. So we help each other by showing role modeling and encouraging each other in what's possible. There are really nice program models being experimented with um, in San Francisco and elsewhere where you have neighborhood block parties that focus on preparedness and make it in kind of a carnival gathering atmosphere. I believe there's a lot of potential to take advantage of these social forces, these social reinforcements in the business community as well, but we have to organize ourselves. Everything you do to thrive in your everyday life is making you more resilient. You're probably more resilient than you think you are. Who you know, what you've done for them, the social ties, the bonds you've built with people, that's what's going to help you out most in the disaster. It's true that having a group of people hold each other accountable will help them motivate and inspire each other to do better. I can see the idea of a resilience group spreading like wildfire. One neighbor will tell their neighbor, and then they'll tell their neighbor. Maybe wildfire isn't a great example, but I can see how impactful it could be to have friends, neighbors, and members of the community lead by example, modeling preparedness. This leads me to think that maybe it just takes one person to start a chain reaction, one voice for resilience. Then this idea of sharing information in a social setting, like the block party Cheryl mentioned, can be a great way to make the whole subject of preparedness and prevention seem more appealing and the process seem less intimidating. So Cheryl, is this kind of what you're saying? What should our main takeaway be? What benefits one benefits all, and what benefits all benefits one. So there's this interconnectedness between individual communities investing in resilience and the resilience of the entire state. The, what the state invests in in terms of resilience is going to help out the local community. The same thing applies at the individual business or homeowner level. The investment I make in being safer and more prepared myself relieves the burden on the city to take care of me after an event. And when I support local policies that 
raise up the bar on how buildings are constructed in my community, I'm going to have access to services. My job is going to be intact. Fewer of my neighbors will move away. Uh, I'm going to see the benefit from that too. Another thing I want to say is that these kinds of investments are achievable. So there's demonstrated projects out there that financially, technically, logistically have shown these types of uh, investments are possible. And a third message I'd like to get across is the urgency. Uh, We have seen from past disasters what our future might look like. And we have to act today if we don't want to be there. Evan, Cheryl really sold the message of choosing resilience with examples from her own experience. She really opened my eyes about how change can happen and how prevention truly is the best medicine. It's true. And also what Cheryl shared with us about how choosing resilience doesn't have to be painful or excessively burdensome. When you find win-win opportunities and everyone shares in the work, exercising our resilience muscles can even be enjoyable. Cool. So who's going to be our next interview? We're going to hear from Ryan Kirsting, a structural engineer in Sacramento, California, who has been a real leader in combining both the engineering aspects of resilience and the advocacy that's necessary to bring groups of stakeholders together to achieve success. Great. Looking forward to it. For more resources and information about Cheryl Rabinovich, the subjects she covered, or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archive of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. Next episode, I'll be deep diving into the Resilience Advantage interview with Ryan Kirsting, a structural engineer based in Sacramento, California.